You're listening to Simperts Radio, episode number 164. And today we're talking about why your behavior isn't changing, even though you're thinking more positive. Welcome to Simple Roots Radio with Alexa Sherm. Alexa believes that simplicity in life is the key to achieving true and lasting health. And now your host, Alexa Sherm. Welcome back to this podcast. As always, my name's Alexa, and this is the place to get healthy, live happy, and find more joy. Today, we're answering a big question. Have you ever been frustrated by the fact that you are changing your mind so much? You are thinking more positive and you're really working on this means of gratitude and just trying to push your spells into new and more positive space in your mind, and yet you don't see the change that you want to see. Now, we've been kind of talking about the action steps, the visualization, and the actually doing something to go along with that positive mindset, but today we're going to dive in more. In fact, I have a neuroscientist, Dr. Nicole Avina, who's going to be on the show answering questions as it relates to food addictions and the mindset that we create around the food that we eat and the lifestyle choices that we live in. So we're going to talk about how do we actually create new habits, how do we overcome bad habits, and really, how do we make something that sticks for life? She's also going to be breaking down the myths of why the all-or-nothing diet will never work and how willpower is actually not something that we should rely on. So we're diving into a lot of things today on the show, but the big thing is, is why things aren't changing, even though you're thinking more positive, and even if you do see things changing, how you can speed up that process and the action that you take. So stay tuned as we talk with Dr. Avina, but before we get to the show, don't forget that you can find that Hormone Reset, the guide that so many people are asking about, over at SemperizWellness.com. It's a five-day quick reset that gives you meal plans, lifestyle action steps, relational action steps to really help your body create the space it needs to heal. It is a really wonderful program. Everything is laid out, including all the recipes that you need and your entire family can do it. There's no supplements or tinctures. It's all real food and lifestyle-based program that can be completed in five days. Yes, I've had a lot of questions on hormones and how it affects your mood, all of those things. So if you want to learn more about that program, head on over to SemperanceWellness.com and click on the Hormone Reset. It is one of my favorite programs ever. It really has transformed my own life and it was created in my own need for healing in my body. It really does create that reset that your body needs to thrive and you will notice a difference. I guarantee it. So make sure you find out more at SemperanceWellness.com. Click on the Hormone Reset. All the information is there. Also, don't forget to check out today's show notes where I dive in more on the subject of behavior change and creating good and positive habits in your life and how that creates the change that you're looking for. So to get all the information on today's show, where to learn more about Dr. Avina, her books, head on over to SemperanceWellness.com backslash 164. But today, I want to get right to the show because like I said, Dr. Avina is so incredible. She's going to dive into so much information that I've wanted to know for a long time and just clarify a lot of subjects. But before we get to today's show, I do want to do a formal introduction of Dr. Avina. Dr. Nicole Avina is a research neuroscientist and a pioneer in the field of food addiction. She is an expert in the field of sugar, food addictions, and overeating, as well as prenatal baby, toddler, and childhood nutrition. Today, like I said, Dr. Avina is going to dive into the mindset and why we do the things that we do when it comes to diet and exercise. 
She also has many books that you're going to want to check out, including books like What to Eat When You're Pregnant, Why Diets Fail, and What to Feed Your Baby and Toddler. So make sure you head to the show notes to get all the information on those books or check out Dr. Avina at drnicoleavina.com. Okay, for now, let's get right to the show. Welcome to the show, Dr. Avina. I'm excited to have you on. Oh, thanks. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah. So today I am talking about the mindset and you are the perfect guest because you're a neuroscientist. And so I really want to dig into that specifically about behavior change. And we're going to talk about food addiction and other things because that's also your specialty. But I really want to talk about why behavior change is so hard to incorporate and why is it so difficult for people? Yeah, it's such a great topic because, I mean, it really affects all of us, right? It Depending on, you know, what your goals are or sort of where you are in your health journey, I mean, everybody is trying to change some behavior or another. And that's really the barrier for many people is figuring out how to get those behavior changes to stick and to last over time. What is holding people back from that? Why do we, I guess what I'm trying to say is why do we tend to repeat the same vicious cycles over and over? Is it just because that's normal? That's like our common rhythm or is it because we actually are fearful of that change? Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with simple habits, simple habit formation. And in our brains, when we develop a habit, we really just have this whole neurocircuitry that gets activated that reinforces that habit. And over time, you know, when we keep engaging in these behaviors and, you know, sometimes they're good habits like, you know, brushing your teeth every morning um, when sometimes they're not so good habits, like, you know, maybe, you know, overeating or drinking too much wine or whatever it might be. Um, but it becomes, the more you do it, the more ingrained it becomes in our brain and the more our brains are expecting us to engage in those behaviors. And so, you know, sticking with the toothbrushing example, most of us probably wake up and just mindlessly wander into the bathroom and brush our mm-hmm. teeth because we've been doing it every morning since we were little kids. And so, that has become a habit that has become so entrained that we rarely even think about it or, or consciously like have to remember to do it. And on many levels, the same thing happens with a lot of the bad habits that we develop. So, you know, if we develop this habit where we're not eating healthy or like, you know, not eating the right kinds of foods or not exercising enough, um, that can become the same type of situation where, you know, our brain has become wired to expect that type of behavior And it really does take some work to readjust and to change that behavior because it is based in neural connections that are, you know, hardwired in our brains. Right, right. So when we specifically look at negative food patterns, like, can you walk us through what happens inside the brain when we, when we repeat these cycles over and over? Like why, what is the chemical reaction that's happening and how long does it take for that to be overcome with something positive? Yeah. So for instance, if we use sugar as an example, sugar is something that a lot of people have, you know, a hard time cutting back on and and maybe you're consuming too much of. And we've done a lot of research in my lab looking at how sugar affects the brain. And one of the things we've discovered is that when people eat sugar in excess, that it activates parts of the brain that affect the reward. And so it makes us feel good to eat sugar. That's why people do it. Right. And so what ends up happening though over time is that we develop tolerance to the sugar, just like you could develop tolerance to alcohol and then you need to drink more alcohol to feel good. The same thing happens with sugar. And so 
you end up developing the situation where you need to consume more and more sugar to feel good again. And so people really develop this cycle of distress, if you will, because they need to consume more and more of the sugar to feel good. And when they don't consume the sugar, they feel bad. And so it becomes this sort of interplay in terms of neurotransmitter release and, and receptors in our brain. But the primary players are really dopamine and opioids in our brain. Those are two of the neurochemicals that are involved with the reward process. And those are the ones that we're finding are also altered when people eat too much sugar. So is our brain, like, this is one of the questions I've been coming up with, because I know that we have all these receptors for pleasure. Is that technically a survival mechanism of our brain? Or Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes, it absolutely is. Um, and so basically, you know, our brains are designed to keep us alive, right? Uh-huh. And so we're going to find things that we need to do to survive to be pleasurable so that we'll continue to do them. Mm. So if you think about it, you know, sexual behavior, eating, Those are things that are designed to feel good because we need to do those things in order to survive as a species. And so that's why we have these reward systems put in place to reinforce these natural behaviors that are um, necessary for the survival of our species. And what happens with things like drugs of abuse or in many cases even with, you know, highly processed foods that have lots of sugars in them is that they can – overactivate these brain systems as well. And so drugs become addictive because, you know, they activate these primitive brain systems that were put in place to reinforce natural behaviors, but they activate them, you know, in excess Mm -hmm. of what a natural behavior ever could activate them to be. Right. So when we go back to like the emotion and I see a lot of people who stressy or, you know, we're specifically talking about anxiety, all of this is triggering something in our brain and in some cases driving people to eat. Is it because it's working on that reward center of like the anxiety triggers something that is negative in the brain? And so to pick that back up as a survival mechanism, we go for the drug of choice that gives us that reward. Exactly. And a lot of people self-medicate in that way. And so people who do have anxiety or stress um, will turn to sometimes drugs and alcohol, but sometimes it's just turn to food. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it can be a way to self-soothe and it can do so because it's activating this brain reward system. So it is going to provide us with pleasure. You know, it activates the brain opioid systems, which are systems in the brain that are essentially allowing us to, you know, mitigate pain. And so that will be activated by food in many cases when people eat highly palatable foods. <laughs> and so it is a way for people to cope with some stressors and anxieties that they have in their life. Um, and, you know, it, not saying that it's it's not okay to do that, but what happens is if people are doing that in excess and they're using food for the wrong reasons often, then it can become problematic because then that's when it can lead into overeating or binge eating And, you know, that's not something that is really a healthy coping mechanism that we want to encourage people to use. Right. It goes to the other extreme then. So speaking of that, like when we talk about binging and other things, I get a lot of questions about disordered eating and a bad view of food. But on the other hand, like there's this whole segment of orthorexia, which is kind of the obsession with healthy food and healthy eating. Are people who are suffering from orthorexia or this obsession with it, have they retrained their brain to get a hit off of that, like a dopamine hit off of that? Or, Yeah, it's a great question. I think the orthorexia is an interesting 
it's really an interesting condition to me because, you know, it's difficult to decide where do you draw the line, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, where do you draw the line between like what's, you know, healthy behavior and what's obsessive behavior? Um, And I think, you know, a lot of times when people sort of get into that category where they're considered to be an orthorexic, I think it has, at that point, I think it has very little to do with the food and more to do with the control. Mm. And so it's, it's more about, you know, controlling and regulating what they're eating, not so much about what they're eating. Right. Um, And I think that, you know, we all need to be mindful about our food choices and try to eat healthy and be aware of, you know, what's in our food and what's on our food. But I also think that we need to always remember that, you know, we do need to take a lot of this with the idea that, you know, food is to nourish us and we don't want it to harm us. And so, to be extreme in many cases um, can have the opposite effect of what's intended by healthy eating. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's just really important to, you know, kind of keep that in mind. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And I mean, I think on both ends of the spectrum, we see people who will argue that willpower is what they need to cope with behavior change or what they need to use in order to get that behavior change. But we've learned over and over that it can fatigue and run out, right? Like it's a very quick source, but it's not lasting. So for you, like, what is this process of overcoming this mindset hurdle of this dopamine hit of food addictions of kind of like the mindset behind why we do what we do? Yeah, I think that the mindset is important. And you raise a really good point when you talk about willpower. Mm -hmm. Um, I think a lot of people kind of sometimes get beaten down by that term because, you know, they think, oh, if if I only had the willpower to do this, I'd be able to lose weight or I'd be able to eat healthier or I'd be able to, you know, achieve whatever goal it is. And I think willpower is certainly a part of it. But I think that we have to keep in mind that there's a lot of research now that's suggesting that you know, our food environment is very powerful and can have a very strong impact on the way we behave. And, you know, we're also faced with constant bombardment of advertisements, of, you know, cues that are are reminding us about these foods that maybe we're trying to not eat so much of. Um, And so there's a lot of sort of external variables that come into play that make it difficult to say that willpower is the thing that you need to do. And even the, the components of the food, a lot of the foods that people tend to overeat are highly processed foods. And the studies are showing that, you know, these are affecting the brain in ways that resemble an addiction. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just like we wouldn't necessarily say to an alcoholic or someone who's got a cocaine addiction, like, oh, you should have the willpower to just stop drinking or stop cocaine. I mean, a lot of that is not really fair because we know that those substances are addictive and they're changing their brains. So it's really a difficult thing when we think about how to wrap our minds around all this because willpower, yeah, we need to have some of that, but a lot of it is, it's bigger than just willpower alone. I think a lot of it involves a, almost a systemic change in the way we look at our food environment and the way we think about food in general. Right. So when we start to look at this and this entire behavior change, whether it's changing our eating patterns or, you know, changing our mind, like having mindset shifts. Is this all about retraining the brain in some way? Like what's the process of that? Yeah, it it is. And I think it's, the process can vary depending on the person and depending on, you know, what the goals are. But I think the ultimate end point is to really just get to the point where you're able to reformat your habits so that they're no longer bad habits. And so they're no longer habits, you know, that you're not happy with. 
And I think a lot of that involves um, making those behavioral changes and doing them repeatedly. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times people, you know, let's just say they're trying to eat healthier. Well, one of the biggest hurdles that people face is they try to do it all at one time. They try to make all these radical changes overnight. Like if you think about New Year's Day, everybody goes right. on a diet and starts their life over and says, oh, this year is going to be the year I'm going to get healthy. And they make all these changes. And a couple days into it, it doesn't stick because it's just too hard. And that's because we're overwhelming our brains when we try to make all these changes at once. And so I think a better option for people is to make small changes over time and have them build. Mm -hmm. And then eventually you'll be able to change in a way that's, um, you know, going to have lasting effects because anybody can do anything for a couple of days or even a month. But if you want to have long lasting changes that are, are going to become automatic, like brushing your teeth, then you need to do them repeatedly and slowly. And it's not about making all these radical changes at once, but about making small incremental changes over time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So when we, when we do that and we have someone who has this like dopamine hit that they've fulfilled with some kind of food addiction, does that naturally subside over time? You know, like I think about like addicts, like they're, they're constantly looking for that hit. Like, does that actually go away or are they just more predisposed for the rest of their life to kind of be searching for that? Yeah, I think that there, you know, addiction is a lifelong disease. Mm -hmm. And so it is not something that people get cured from. It is not something that you can go to a 28 day program and stay in Malibu or wherever and, and be cured. It is a lifelong disease and people face um, challenges for the rest of their life and need to be mindful of those challenges as they go throughout their life. And I think the same thing happens with food. I think people, you know, you can change the way that you eat. You can, you know, sort of revamp your lifestyle and, and eat healthier. But you do need to be mindful of the fact that you are at risk for falling back into those same bad habits. And again, this is simply, you know, if you talk to people who are smokers, that's a great example. People who've smoked for years and then they quit smoking. I've talked to people who haven't smoked a cigarette in 20 years. But they'll say that every once in a while mm – -hmm. They'll see somebody smoking a cigarette or they'll smell a cigarette and it'll just set this something off in their brain where they just suddenly feel an urge to have a cigarette. Now, it doesn't mean they give into that urge. They've learned to develop the coping skills to manage those urges and they're mindful of the dangers that are associated with giving into those urges so they are able to resist them. But it doesn't mean that the urges go away. They're still there. It's just that over time, they become less intense and people are able to develop the repertoire of skills that they need to manage them so that they don't necessarily have to give in to them. Yes. Okay. That, that makes sense on that aspect. So I kind of want to get into the mindset of eating because I feel like so many of us just eat, right? But how one person thinks about what they're eating versus someone else can change the way that digestion occurs. I don't know if you do any research about this or or what your take is on this, but can you just get into the mindset of when we actually look at food, like our view of food and that, how that changes our brain chemistry and everything else? Yeah, no, I think that's an important topic because, you know, how we approach eating food and the mindset we develop around it and, and just around diet in general can have a big impact on, you know, our physiology in right. terms of how we process the food and, and also how we're going to move forward in making food choices. I think that 
you know, it, it really boils down to what the present mindset is. And so I think people have a couple different mindsets when it comes to eating. People have sort of a general mindset of, you know, oh, yeah, I, I, I consider myself a healthy person. So I try to eat healthy foods. I try to eat fruits and vegetables when I can. Other people might not have that mindset. They might have more of a loosey-goosey mindset where they're saying, hey, I'm young. I can, you know, I'll eat what I want. And I'll worry about it later. I'm not really stressing about my diet right now. Um, and I think that, you know, that certainly has a role in what types of food choices that we make and, and sort of our the environment we place ourselves in in terms of the types of foods we purchase. But I also think that we have more of an acute mindset, meaning, you know, when you sit down to a meal or when you, you're hungry or you have something happen in your life, food can play a role. And mm-hmm. if people are, you know, in a situation where they're using food to, you know, mitigate stress and anxiety, then that's going to lead to making different types of food choices than one might make if they've developed this mindset that, you know, food is for nourishment and it's not something I use when I'm stressed out or it's not something I turn to, you know, when I'm nervous. Um, I think that the the idea of food and, and how people use it and the mindset of, around that is very important because if you adopt the mindset that it's okay to use food, you know, to, to mitigate your feelings or to cope with your feelings, then that's going to lead to eating for reasons that are beyond caloric need and beyond just, mm-hmm. you know, the purpose of food, which I think is really the goal that most of us have. Right, right. So maybe you should, I mean, I was just thinking about this as you were talking about that, because you said a few things that food is not and a few things that food is. And I think we have this maybe messed up view of what food is actually intended to be. So can you go through, like, make a short list of what food is not supposed to be and what food is supposed to be? Yeah, I think that, um, so, again, this is looking at it from the perspective of, you know, overall food is meant to be nourishment and calories that we can use as energy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some might argue with that and say, oh, well, food can be for pleasure, too. I'm kind of of the mindset that there's plenty of things in life we can get pleasure from on a regular basis. And, you know, it's fine if people want to indulge in dessert once in a while or, you know, eat foods that they enjoy. But that doesn't mean they have to be unhealthy foods. Right. And so, you know, you can say that, you know. I like smoked salmon, so I have that for breakfast every morning. I get a lot of pleasure out of eating smoked salmon. And so for me, that that's the pleasure I'm getting from mm-hmm. food. So I don't want to say that you shouldn't get pleasure from food, but I do think it's important to keep in mind that, you know, there are so many sources of pleasure in life and, and food's a part of them, but the, the types of foods that fall under that umbrella, I think we need to be careful in thinking about. Um, I also think it's important to consider the fact that, you know, many of the foods that are in our environment I don't even think are foods. And so I'll give you an example. So I teach health psychology at Princeton University, and I I give this in my lecture when I talk about nutrition. Um, You know, we have this concept of food in our environment, and food can be anything from a whole baby carrot, like a little bag of carrots that, you know, you can pick up that bag of carrots in the grocery store and know that they came from a carrot that's been peeled and washed, and, you know, they're a food. But then on the other side of the spectrum, we have things like Pop-Tarts and, you know, cookies and these man-made concoctions of chemicals, essentially, and other ingredients that are put together in a laboratory. And so, you know, they're not grown on trees. There's no Pop-Tart tree out there or bush or anything like that. But nonetheless, we consider those to be foods. And so I think what 
happens is uh, from a psychology standpoint, we hear the word food and all these things are labeled as food, but I think that they're extremely different from one another. I can't find one similarity between a carrot and a Pop-Tart. Right. But they're both under this umbrella of food. And so when someone says, I'm hungry, those are both food options. So they're both on the table. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I, I think a lot about this in terms of, you know, how we define food and, and, and how it, it, I think it'd be helpful to kind of understand that a bit more. Because right now, I think, you know, we don't really have a lot of clear distinction between, you know, these different categories of foods, which in my opinion, are vastly different from each other and, and really you know, maybe shouldn't be lumped into the same category as they are. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. I like that distinction that you made, because I think, like you said, we just lump all of this substance under the label of food. But there's a drastic difference between what is nourishing and maybe what's just a substance um, right. that we can use. So being in health psychology and the field of food and the mind, what do you feel like is missing from our health education today? And what I mean by health education is this blanket of everyone who's pumping out health knowledge across the board. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's a great question. We could talk for like an hour about that. <laughs> um, so a couple of things that come to mind. First is, you know, younger people, and I'm talking about like elementary school age kids and even high school age children are not getting nutrition education. Mm -hmm. They are not getting information about the dangers of food choices and how, you know, habits can form early in life and how these habits can be difficult to break later on. Um, I think that that's really a critical missing element in our society in terms of nutrition education is that we're not educating the next generation about healthy eating and by the time these people become adults or, you know, get to the point in life where they realize, oh, wow, I need to worry about this, it can really be difficult to change the behaviors that they've already developed. And they could also already have comorbid health conditions associated with their diet. Um, and so I think that that's really an important thing that we need to work toward is to educate younger people about good nutrition, about what that looks like, because, you know, they're getting their nutrition education from their parents or from their caregivers. And a lot of times parents and caregivers are just, you know, trying to get through the day and just trying to make sure the kids are eating and have something to eat. And it can really be a lot for people to to manage. So I think that's really a, a mm -hmm. key component. Right. Mm -hmm. Another one that I think is important is, you know, we're, we're almost getting over bombarded with information. Um, and, you know, depending on where you look on the Internet, you can find an article that will support or refute whatever piece of health advice you're, you're right. interested in getting. Yes. So I, I think that there is a real need. And this is, you know, I'm passionate about translating the science to the public. Um, as a scientist, I feel like it's almost become a duty mm -hmm. of scientists because, you know, we're doing all this great research and spending all this time doing these studies and it has to be evidence-based. And so the, the advice that people are going to follow really needs to be built off of scientific research. And I feel like, especially in the nutrition field, a lot of the different advice that's out there is often built off of one person or a couple people's experiences, which is also informative and important, but really the science behind it needs to be there too before we can adopt it into something mainstream. So I really think that those are the two kind of critical missing pieces in terms of education is, you know, aligning the 
advice and the information that's out there with the science and then also making sure that that information gets to our younger generation because those are the people that really need um, to get that advice early on. Yes. I love what you said because I feel like by the time people come out as adults and seek out help, <laughs> we have a whole world of past experiences that have built them to this point. And it's so much easier, like you said, of building a mind based in health rather than trying to fix what's already been broken in a way. Right, right. Um, yeah, so I love that. I, I love that aspect of that. So to continue on kind of with this this idea of what aren't we providing, I feel like you also hit the nail on the head when you said that there is just confusion. And you didn't specifically say confusion, but this massive amount of information. You're like, I feel like the, the statistics are showing that we get more information in a day than an entire lifetime before 1993. And yep. <laughs> I mean, just we're just overwhelmed with it. And I've kind of questioned the mind's ability to take information and almost complexify it in a way. Like, I think health is really like at, at a foundational level, supposed to be pretty simple. Like our body should know what it's supposed to do, right? It's like when we when we try to override that and work against our body in some way. Of course, there is complexity to the body. I'm not saying that. But I feel like we take these simple health solutions mm -hmm. and we complexify them. And I don't think it's just with health. Like I think in life... Is our mind naturally prone to complexify simple things? Um, I think that, you know, there's some theories about that, that, you know, we tend to take basic things and turn them into to chaos in some <laughs> cases. And I think that that's, that's what I think most of us are now doing. I think people, like you said, it, it should be relatively simple, but it's not mm -hmm. when it comes to nutrition, especially, um, you know, and, you know, the idea is that, you know, eat healthy food, exercise, and you'll be healthy. But it's not that simple right. because, you know, people don't know, well, okay, well, how much exercise? And maybe I have barriers to getting exercise or maybe I have physical limitations. And then when it comes to the health food, okay, well, which foods are healthy? How much to eat? You know, should you eat meat? Should you not eat meat? Should you eat dairy, GMO? Like it, it just becomes all these second questions that pop up. And I think that those are important and obviously valid questions we need to be talking about and, and researching. But for the everyday person, it just becomes overwhelming because right. you don't know where to start. Um, and so, you know, that's part of what I talk a lot about in my in my books. Um, one book in particular, Why Diets Fail. And that is a book that talks about the science of sugar addiction, but it also talks about how you can, you know, eat healthier and really wean yourself off of sugar. And one of the big things I talk about is not trying to change everything at once because people get overwhelmed. And it's really about making these, like I said earlier, small incremental changes in your diet and letting them stick and then making another change and letting that stick. And then over time, it'll build up so that you are making a prolonged sustained change in the way that you eat and the way that your behaviors are forming. Um, and I think that, you know, that's really a lot of that is dictated by, you know, we have this bombardment of information. So people feel compelled to change everything, like, you know, the minute that they learn about it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, right. And so taking that, like, what would be your first few steps that you would tell someone, okay, if you want to start, here's an idea of where to get started. Yeah. So when it comes to diet, what the very first thing I suggest that people do, and this is a little bit different, I tell people to reevaluate your liquid calories mm. and what you're drinking. Um, 
And, you know, people often will say, well, why that? Like, you know, who cares what you're drinking so much? It's more about what you're eating. But in reality, what you're drinking really matters because if you're drinking sugar-sweetened beverages or you're drinking even caloric beverages throughout the day, those calories are not processed in the same way that food calories are. And so you're not going to get satiated from drinking a can of soda but you would get satiated from drinking the equivalent calories of like an apple. And so even though, you know, they might be the same calories, your body's metabolizing them very differently if they're in liquid form versus solid form. Mm -hmm. And so that's really, you know, one of the first things I I tell people is, you know, let's take an evaluation of what you're drinking throughout the day um, because there may be places where we can make some substitutions And you can very quickly go from, you know, having, you know, a diet where you're consuming, you know, maybe a thousand calories a day in beverages to, you know, zero calories a day from beverages just by making some simple changes. So I think that's an easy place for many people to start. And it's not quite so daunting as, you know, changing what you're eating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Just it's the simple things, right? Like just one little thing at a time can make all the difference. Yeah. But it's a big thing though, because I mean, if you think about it, if somebody's drinking like, and I've had people that I've worked with in the past that are drinking, you know, maybe four or five sodas a day or juices a day. And that can be over a thousand calories easily. Mm -hmm. And if you think about that, the savings alone in a month, you're going to lose weight just by changing nothing, but cutting out those thousand calories a day. If you replace them with water or seltzer or something else, you know, it's going to really have an impact not only on your calorie content, but also in your cravings. Because, you know, a lot of these beverages that have sugars in them, cause us to then crave more sugars. And so that's leading to more eating later on. And so there's like a domino effect when it comes to what you're drinking in terms of how it can affect your food choice. Right, right. Yeah. So good. Okay. Outside of food, do you believe that there are other practices that will affect our eating patterns? So I think that exercise is definitely one of them and the level of exercise that people are getting. Um, and, you know, people often think that, oh, if I if I start exercising too much, I'm going to have to eat more. But many people find that it's actually the opposite. You're actually just better able to utilize your calories when you're exercising and you're burning them for fuel. And I think that exercise, you know, can be a great way to replace the reward that people used to get from food. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, one of the big challenges with exercise is really just getting started with it. And, and people who, you know, I haven't been very active and maybe have been a bit sedentary for a while, you know, might find that the first couple weeks is tough. But once you get into some sort of routine and find that you're able to get yourself doing something a couple days a week, it can really make a big difference. And it doesn't mean you have to become like this person who joins the gym or like runs a marathon. It can be something as simple as like, you know, going for a walk for 20 minutes or, you know, getting a bike and maybe riding a little bit a couple days a week. I mean, there's lots of different things that you can do. It doesn't have to be an organized activity or this whole, you know, event that, you know, you're now suddenly this exercise person. It can be very subtle and it can really have an impact on your health and how you feel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So good. Okay. Last question before we get into some quick fire. What do you hope someone knows about food addictions and recovering from food addictions? Oh, I think the thing I hope at this point now is that people know that they're real. Um, When I first started doing research on this, it was almost about 15 years ago. And at that time, there weren't any 
empirical studies that have been done looking at food addiction. There have been some anecdotal reports of people talking about feeling like they were addicted to food, but there really wasn't much research on the topic. And so we started doing research on it. And, you know, since then, we've seen a lot of studies come out that have really validated this concept. And so I think for those individuals who suffered with a food addiction and felt compelled to overeat, um, it's really validating for them to know that the science is there to support what they're feeling, what they're going through. And the next steps are really to better understand how we can help people to overcome food addiction, how we can treat it, how we can prevent it. Um, so that those people will have the resources that they need. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's really the key thing um, for anyone who feels that they have a food addiction or who who have heard about it is to know that there is science behind it and it is backed up. And so I think that that is really, you know, something that um, is important moving forward. Yeah. This has been so good, Dr. Avina. I really thank you so much for sharing this information. Um, Before you tell us more about where we can learn more about you and find your work in your books, I have a few quick fire questions. So, okay. what is the first thing you do every morning for your health? Oh, well, this is a little different than maybe other people, but I have a toddler. And so the first thing I do, well, my my toddler crawls into bed with me every morning. And so the first thing I do is like snuggle a little baby for <laughs> about 15 minutes every morning. <laughs> But there is huge health benefits to the relational touching aspect of health. I mean, we can't diminish that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's a great way. And I I just say that because not everyone has the luxury of having a toddler. (laughs) But if you do, then I highly suggest you have your mornings be structured that way because it's such a great way to wake up and start the day. Um, And I feel like for me, like mindset wise, it really just puts me in this very happy, loving place. That's a great way to start the day. So I don't wake up feeling like, oh, my gosh, my to do list is a mile long. You know, I wake up snuggling a little baby. (laughs) Uh So awesome. What is your favorite mindset book? Oh, um, so I'm a big fan of Carol Dweck's books. Um, She's, you know, a big advocate of talking about growth mindset. Mm. And I highly suggest you check out her, her work and her books. Um, she's just really done a lot for the field of, uh, she's really like, you know, I, I want to say like the founders of the field of mindset and, and, um, I, I find that her seminal studies and the work that she's done just with, you know, evaluating things from a growth mindset and taking challenges and bad things, if you will, that happened as opportunities to grow and become better, has really had a big impact on my life and my career. And I just, you know, utilize those principles all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I'll have to check that out. I'll make sure and link that up in the show notes for anyone who's interested. And what's one thing you do for a healthy mind every day? Oh, so I, um, I am a big crossword puzzle fan. Mm. And so I think that, you know, for me, cause I, I'm on, you know, I'm writing a lot, I'm speaking a lot, I'm doing a lot of stuff to keep my mind active, but I also think it's important to have, you know, challenging, fun things to keep your mind active. And so I do crossword puzzles. So I do the New York Times crossword puzzle every day. Um, I can't complete it every day, but I I do try. (laughs) And then um, I also just to relax my mind, because I think it's important that we engage our minds. But I also think it's important that we allow them time for creativity and to just Uh kind of like be open and so I'm a runner, so I, I go for a run a couple of days a week, and it's a great time to just be at peace. I don't listen to music. I just listen to the environment. I allow myself to just have thoughts come in and out. And, you know, I feel like I do my best thinking then because I don't have any 
thoughts that I have to have. I just leave my mind open and allow myself to just kind of be in that moment. And it's a great experience for me to kind of, you know, clear things out and to um, open them up for new ideas. Yeah, yeah. That's such a great tip. And what's the best piece of advice you could leave us with? Oh, I think the best piece of advice I would leave you guys with is really just to keep on doing your best and, you know, make one change. You don't have to change everything. What you're doing is wonderful already. You can just make one small change to better yourself a little bit and that's going to make you happier. And it doesn't have to be this dramatic, dramatic thing. It can be just, you know, one small step that's going to put you in the direction of better health. Mm, Yeah. Such good information. Again, I so appreciate you being here and sharing your knowledge. This is such a fascinating subject and the work that you do is just so amazing to me. So thank you again for the work that you do, the research and bringing it to the masses, like bringing it to people so that we can understand that. So before you go, tell us where we can find more about you and what you do. Okay, great. Um, so my website, drnicoleavina.com is a great resource. We have links to all of the articles that we're writing, um, events that are going on. There's links to the books that I've written. Um, I also do a lot of work in the mom and baby space lately because I've been interested in the first thousand days of life. And so uh, if you're interested in information about that, um, definitely check out my books, What to Eat When You're Pregnant and What to Feed Your Baby and Toddler. Those are two recent books that have come out. Um, and yeah, check that out the website and I'm on social at Dr. Nicole Avina and I'd love to connect with everyone. Yeah. And I will make sure and link all of that up in the show notes so you can find everything that she has to offer. So again, thank you so much for being here, Dr. Avina. Oh, thank you. I hope that was just as helpful for you as it was for me to really open up our eyes that behavior change doesn't just boil down to this all or nothing lifestyle. And it's not as simple as just going in and expecting it to work. There's consistent discipline choices that we have to make because these changes aren't just things that we do, but it's an act of rewiring our internal brain circuitry. Like this takes time and it takes consistent effort. And so while it might not be easy right away and it takes discipline and work over time and the more consistent you are with these things, the easier they become and eventually our bad habits turn into good habits. Now, I know it can be overwhelming and you just want the quick fix, but here's the truth. There isn't a quick fix. If we don't do this the right way the first time, we'll naturally want to fall back into those old patterns and these old behaviors and old habits. So in order to break that, as Dr. Arvina mentioned, it's the small things, the little rhythms that you can change that are going to add up to bigger things over time. It really is like the snowball effect. You do one thing, one little thing that just slowly and consistently over time adds up to more and more and more things without you really having to work at it. So pick one thing in your life to work on, one bad habit that maybe you want to change to a good habit or just good action plan that make you feel really good that you want to add to your life and do more of that. Just pick one, focus on that and put it into practice. As Dr. Arvina said, it's the small, steady changes that matter over time. So don't get discouraged to stay focused, and you will be one that will see great results in the long run. If you want to get more information on that and all the other things that we talked about in today's show, as well as the resources and how to learn more about Dr. Arvina, 
head on over to the show notes at simperswellness.com backslash 164. Again, I loved her and I hope you did as well. Make sure you go and support Dr. Avina by grabbing one of her books, checking out some of the videos that she has online and following her on Facebook. She is a fantastic woman, driven and really working in this space to help us better understand how our mind works based on the habits that we live with. Okay, that's it for today's show. I will be back next week with another episode of Monday Motivation and then another interview talking all about the anxiety spiral with one of my favorite guests, Allie Worthington.